Welcome to the Dark Days Dawning Cult Podcast, hosted by Michael Mulvihill. The first episode of this podcast is called Cults, the Psychodynamics of Cult Induction and Sustained Membership. The first episode of the Dark Days Dawning Cult Podcast should serve as an introduction to the dark and terrifying world of cults and sects. Cults claim complete control over their members' life, creating a death to their freedom and a stoppage to their critical thought processes. The cult inductee is brought into a world which is actually not at all dissimilar to inducing a waking trance. The subject, fueled by sleep deprivation, endless hours of meaningless shores, several hours of group meetings and classes, that drench the new cult member with thoughts and memories regarding the literature and beliefs of the cult, will have their mind reprogrammed to think like the group to which they have now aligned themselves with. In respect of this, I ask, did you ever wonder why people join and remain in cults and how they who once were not members of a cult became brainwashed cult members? Just what sort of people lead cults whilst others simply follow? If you have wondered these whys, you are in good company because so have I, and that is possibly why we are both here to bonder and to reflect. The process of joining. How do people join cults? Being immersed in the ideology and propaganda of a cult, where the brain is washed of its intellectual and rational defences, is indeed something to truly contemplate. The denuding of our psychological defences help to trigger acceptance of this new state of being, which initially the subconscious mind will accept as something euphoric and welcoming. A kind of neurochemical high is induced, as if the newly inducted is chemically elated and under a spell. Naturally, cults deserve my knowledge of hypnosis to elucidate how a person becomes hooked into this world. Hypnosis represents a closing off of the outside world. It can be created through guided meditation and suggestions, wherein the subject's conscious Rational mind is switched off and the subject's more primitive psychological mind is operant. By switching off our thinking mind, what Freud would refer to as the superego, our childhood mind, the id, which is highly impressionable, becomes the landing bay for the new thought system that the cult trains its members in. Hypnosis occurs 
naturally to people in their waking lives. We often go in and out of trance and remember very little about what we have actually been doing. Our sense of time becomes distorted in deeper state trance, where one hour can feel like 20 minutes, depending on the level of trance. For example, our threshold for pain can be substantially elevated the deeper level of trance that we find ourselves to be in. I am sure you've often felt like you were in a light state of trance whilst listening to a song or driving on a long journey where it seems your mind just goes on auto and you fly away to somewhere else as if you were in a state of daydreaming. We see in cults where the subject's energies and focus is redirected in gradual stages towards the orientation of the group mind. This is done in hypnotic-like states. For example, in the cult setting, the utilization of hours of long, grueling meetings wears down the brain. It helps grind the subject into an immersion where cult indoctrination is opened up. From the recruitment stage, where the person was presumably previously involved in the business of their day-to-day life, their new life is moving towards a new direction, a new world, a perfect world. If such a thing does not exist, our subject has yet to be informed. The subject has moved from the pathology of their day-to-day life, which may have caused desire to create a flight response towards something new, a thrill-seeking activity, which is certainly activated by thrill of adventure, which is the motivation to join this exciting world. Cults know this only too well and reinforce the thrill of the ride by positive reinforcements such as love, bombing, ego-boosting, behaving towards the new member as if they were their long-lost friends. This is how the new member is primed to accept and be immersed in the cult's ideological outlook. The process is a subtle development, not an immediate onset. From the point of joining the cult to going further on down towards full immersion, a state that will be created and realised down the line. The cult member is shifting from their self-identity, from their real self to their cult self. Their thinking is shifting from their own thoughts as an independent individual to cult thoughts. Their speech is changing from their former vocabulary to cult talk. It is also imperative to know that just like in psychotherapy and hypnosis, the cult member develops what is called a transferential relationship towards the group and its leaders. The cult member acts towards the cult leader or the group in relation to early childhood relationships such as father, mother, sibling. Suggestions, as we know, are worked through via repetition. Naturally, to heighten the power of suggestion, the subject is engaged with the overall topic or focus of the cult, which could be anything from salvation, self-improvement, UFOlogy to Eastern religion, apocalypse and millenarianism to reincarnation self-help ideology as well possibly something 
they were always interested in to augment their self and spiritual and psychological being. Meditation helps to prime the impressionable virgin member to feel they are in exactly the right place. Cults come to their targeted individual wearing the mask, the persona of utopia. The key is to sell the benefit. Thus, cult members have a script that they have perfected and worked through. Pictures are gained in the captive mind of the subject regarding what they as individuals lack in their subjective being. This causes the inductee to realise that their life as a divided subject, to use Lacanian term, can be healed through the enlightenment of the group. The cult knows what you lack, again a Lacanian term, because you have identified, they have identified you, they have targeted you, and through experience they know what they are doing with you. The cult has done their homework on you and now you are taking the base. The cult will fill that psychological, emotional and perhaps lifelong lack, suggesting to the subject that the cult is all of what the inductee needs to grow and to be saved from here and the rest of eternity. In a utopian world, nobody wants anything, nobody needs anything. All one has to do is simply relax. But in order to construct a utopia, work needs to be done, which the recruited cult member will work on for little in return in terms of cash because they will have handed their over their own financial well-being to their leader in exchange for the beginning of this social utopia to be constructed. Cults understand that lurking within all our psyches is the vulnerable part of us known as the Johari window. The part of us that feels inadequate, unattractive, not intelligent enough. The part of us that needs attention Spend enough time with the subject and this will be discovered. When the suggestions and ideology have concretized fully in the minds of the cult member, their former real self, warts and all, will be shadowed by new indoctrinated ego, which offers psychological defenses to guide their minds away from the truth of the new reality which they have found themselves in. Take off the cult mask. The true self of the utopia is discovered, which is profoundly upsetting. The cult actually provides a profoundly hellish existence in what actually is a dystopian world. Ex-cult members often are left feeling the burden of terrible shame duped by a charismatic leader who they have devoted all their resources and life to. Initially, cult members are temporarily satiated through their membership, where their thirst for answers to big questions comes into play. They fill a void through the cult that quenches the pangs of their anxiety. 
longing for further amelioration of their psychic, they make sure to join and fulfilly subscribe to the cult. Ex-cult members naturally find it emotionally triggering and traumatizing when ignorant people ask without any thought why could you not just leave? When leaving a cult can prove to be impossible and downright frightening, especially when a cult may be the only thing that the member has ever known, especially if they were born into a cult. The real question the one could ask that would show insight and empathy and a caring attitude would be to ask with wonderment, how could you pick up the courage and resources to leave? To leave a cult is to simultaneously close off a door to probably the only world the member has known whilst bringing that hypothetical member into a world that they have been prohibited from learning about. Cults are professional at demonizing the outside world. They infuse a phobic pathology within the cult member's psyche, causing the cult member to believe the outside world is strange and evil. And just in case you believe that phobias are not something that can be induced into a human being, you'd be advised to read the case history of little Albert, who was made to be afraid of rabbits. Cult ideology creates associations of negative thoughts with the outside world. Cult members are strongly prohibited from accessing any material that can confirm or, de or deny the cult's worldview. They are also prohibited from accessing material which can portray the cult in a negative light. Free will and freedom of movement is severely compromised in cults. For example, David Berg's The Children of God developed compounds in Thailand that acted as prisons and functioned as theatres of torture. A unifying theme within the world of cults and sects is generated from respective leaders who indoctrinate their followers to treat former members as hell-bound apostates. They are to be shunned by all existing members, including their family members. Former members are duty-bound to create a new identity in the outside world and have to wrestle with the threat of homelessness. If they can survive these challenges, they'll have to give their mind time to process the ugly side effects of being in a cult. Thus far, I've made a stab at the question, how do people get recruited into cults? But I'm sure the burning question is, what keeps the group intact? 
and how do people stay in the group? But before I engineer and answer this question, I for one would really like to answer what exactly are cults and sects and what is the difference between one and the other. A cult and a sect are often compared to religion and the assumption that all religions are cults when in fact cult membership researchers point out that cults have nothing to do with religion. In fact, they frequently vilify religion as the cause of human suffering. A cult is defined as a group or a movement held together by a shared commitment to a charismatic leader or ideology. It has a belief system that has the answers to all of life's questions and offers a special solution to be gained only by following the leader's rules. Whilst the sect is defined as a group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs, typically regarded as heretical from those of a larger group to which they belong. With these definitions secured, we must analyse what keeps people within these cult groups. Certainly, drugs, sex and revelation of people's dark secrets, blackmail, coercion and threat are features of just some of the core reasons why people stay in cults. Cult members are not just desperate, poor, unintelligent people looking for a place to call home. The IQ and educational obtainment of cult members is not abnormally low, nor are they necessarily victims of poverty looking for a quick fix to better their lives. Cults can tell us more about the psychopathological makeup of their leader than be an accurate composite of the individual members that make up any given cult. The polygamous cults have practices that are found in fundamental branches of the Mormon faith, which certainly entice male candidates for membership. Polygamy first starts with the desire of the cult leader, which he initially would have needed to be justified to his wife and his religious faithful in order to keep this practice going. It basically serves the leader's interests to justify their sexual practices on spiritual, theological grounds. Mormonism developed a space opera theology that fitted into the frames of the polygamy team. Accordingly, if you are not polygamous, you could not enter heaven. In heaven, the practice of polygamy was to be continued according to the concept of celestial sex. We can understand why the founders of Mormonism found many willing men to agree to this. Joanne Hanks, 2012, the wife of polygamous husband, in her book titled It's Not About the Sex, My Ass, explains the justifications her church leaders used to justify the practice of polygamy. Joanne Hanks wrote, quote, It's not about the sex. We constantly lectured the morbidly curious. It was about building God's kingdom on earth. 
It was about saving desperate single women from unworthy men who could give them no kingdom in the hereafter. We were fulfilling a higher calling. End quote. What she is describing is the bridge that her church members identified between polygamy and salvation, which glued both the men and the women of the community into this practice. Patriarchal polygamy is a practice where wives experience a kind of hell wherein they must live with a pseudo form of adultery under their own roof. Again, to quote Joanne Hanks, if you wanted to go to heaven, you had to be a polygamist. Yet all the same, there were times when the higher law struck me as a bit kinky. End quote. The identification of sex as a power to draw people into cults is certainly identifiable across the board. Stephen Hassan, the cult expert who developed the bite model to help understand cults, discusses his own personal entry into the Moonies cult. The Moonies, or the Unification Church, deployed attractive nubile women who love-bombed him when he was only 19 years of age, helping to stir him into the direction of the Unification Church. David Berg, the leader of the Children of God, developed within his evangelical cult the practice of flirty fishing. Married women within the cult would practice a type of evangelical prostitution where they were advised to go to bars, meet men and sleep with them. David Berg recommended sex as an excellent tool to encourage men to join what we now know was an international and highly lucrative sex cult. If we consider that cult members gave over their entire wealth, their ability to pay taxes and be profitable members of society, of course something must keep them in this world, which definitely represents a movement away from mainstream culture. The Rajneesh Puram cult in the state of Oregon encouraged their young members to have all-day, everyday open-air orgies, much to the disgust of their conservative neighbours. Orgies match with the use of drugs and people, too zoned out in the land of oblivion. They were happy to continue what conventional society regard as an unproductive life. A more productive, in terms of uh, maintenance of cult membership, a more sophisticated method of keeping people in the cults was to use drugs like LSD, sleep deprivation and the encouragement of the member to tell deeply embarrassing secrets, their innermost secrets, which could be filed and kept on record at any time a member should wish to protest or to leave the cult digging them deeper and deeper into this pit. The Australian cult of the family was particularly prodigious at using this method. Now that we have discovered what keeps people in cults, how do we go about learning what the inner life of a cult is like? Through documents, 
photographs, official websites, blogs, diaries, documentaries, autobiographies, all help to bring us closer to this mysterious world. As far as I'm concerned, to study about cults is to study all at once history, sociology, anthropology, psychoanalysis, literature, criminology and philosophy. Photos of cult members bring home the living reality of what life in cults are like. If lucky, you can catch a glimpse at a before, during and after, provided the cult member wasn't born into a cult and, depending on them, having ever left the cult. Cult member photos depict real people, their human suffering, where we may catch insights into the why questions we may be asking or what the member's life was like in the afterlife of leaving a cult. Cults are like totalitarian regimes existing in politically what is termed the free world. For example, there is a huge number of dangerous cults and sects worldwide, a shocking number of which have come out of the USA, the world's only superpower that has often been described as the world's policeman. These cults are kept together by authoritarian leaders who classically have narcissistic personality disorder and who are expert at mind control, manipulation and social coercion. Our research develops the theme of just how sexually, economically, emotionally and socially abused these cult members are. Even if we know nothing about the people depicted in the photographs I'm about to talk about, all one has to do is look and see the traumatised faces that are looking back at us. Our mind naturally will tell us something is wrong here. Photographs of child members are most disturbing. The Australian Doomsday Cult of Family photographed child members depicting a world where kids dressed uniformly in identical clothes and bleached their hair platinum, shaping their hair like the alien's helmet from the 1980s TV series V. The fact that these children would not look out of place on the set of the 1984 horror film The Children of the Corn, to my mind, is not a vehicle for undeveloped comedy to be mined. Instead, it tells us what level of heartbreaking stories these little people could tell us if photographs could talk. The photographed children, we can conclude, were utterly deprived of their individual identity, a theme that is by no means peculiar to this doomsday cult. These children of the family cult were stuck in a remote farm off Melbourne, savagely beaten, ill-educated, deprived of freedom of movement, freedom of thought, deprived of freedom of choice, abused and malnourished, with nowhere to go and nowhere to escape. Photographs help tell a story that is ongoing, never-ending, a live event, even as I speak. The pain exists in the psyche of both active and former members of cults alike. Take a look at the front cover of the book by Susan Ray Schmidt's favourite wife, Escape from Polygamy. 
you will see the archetypal old Mormon patriarch surrounded by seven women. The women in the photo look straight ahead. They do not smile. One girl looks as if she is disassociating from her body, like her physical body is alive, but she is psychologically somewhere else. This is a clear and present symptom of trauma. The cult members have nowhere to run and nowhere to go to. Their lives are, of course, not governed by choice and free will. It is a world where the rules of the state do not matter because the cult operate according to their own laws in a world where child marriage and statutory rape is an established norm. Menticide or brainwashing was a key word identified to explain the intellectual sabotage the cult members experience. The association between brainwashing, totalitarianism and tyrism and tyrants who share same characteristic as cult leaders was tirelessly well established in the book The Rape of the Mind by Juiced Verlu in 1955. The leader Verlu fixates on to explain brainwashing is Adolf Hitler and therefore the ideology deployed as a vehicle for brainwashing is Nazism. Verlu also discusses communism to help further explain the brainwashing phenomenon. The Soviets and the Nazis may have been on opposite sides in World War II, however both regimes were totalitarian and no stranger to mass killing their own citizens in camps. When a communist regime would take control in a country, you could blank on at least 10% of the population to be murdered in order to fill the correctional service of rendering the population cleansed and prepared to take in the new utopian ideology. Verlou, as a commentator on totalitarianism, references George Orwell's 1984, which is really a book to inform Westerners of what the world would be like if the Soviet Union had spread into the Western Europe. From reading Verlou, I have come to think of cults and sects as representing separate, many totalitarian states within a broader state, which they seem to live independently of. The cult leader has the same personality disorder as a dictator. The cult members are like brainwashed citizens who are empathic and pathologically obedient to their leader. They will follow him even down criminal routes because they believe their spiritual salvation depends on it. The cult leader is a megalomaniac with delusions of grandeur that serve only to exploit members who are toys for the leader to play with. Childhood pictures of cult leaders and adult pictures. I remember from reading about the Nazis what emotion is whipped up when authors show pictures of the most evil people in history, such as Hitler, from infancy to childhood to adulthood. Looking at pictures of Hitler as a baby, I think it demythologizes him. Psychopaths are typically not inclined 
to humanize themselves by admitting that they have a problem. So while psychoanalysts like the great Eric H. Erickson did write about Hitler's psychopathology, you can understand that Hitler never would have seen himself as mentally ill. What is discussed herein are simply the characteristics of psychopaths, people like David Korash, the leader of the Branch Davidians, Shoko Asahara, the leader of the Am Sukru cult, David Berg, the leader of the Children of God, Marshall Applewhite, the leader of the Heaven's Gate UFO cult. Also, they would never in their lifetime submit themselves to any form of psychoanalytical therapy. It's very hard to think of these people as human beings, especially when they denied the humanity of others and violated their human rights. They duped people into belief systems that caused too much suffering to the human race. When I look at, at photos of psychopaths as an infant, I can see that it triggers in me a reminder that monsters were once human. I learn in contrast from looking at childhood pictures of cult members that their fate is written by the tyranny of a cult leader who has signed members up. I find myself in meditation thinking about the quotation from Friedrich Nietzsche Whoever fights a monster should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster himself. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back at you. I frankly worry about the solutions we come with, with to these cults and sects that have ruined countless lives. What are we to do in response? Are we to follow the law of retaliation? Lex talionis, uncompromising, following the laws of life for a light, a toot for a toot, and a nail for a nail. I worry about extreme responses, but at the same time I worry about intransigence, about the likelihood of doing nothing about something that needs to be done about. We all know what happened when Nero fiddled whilst Rome burnt. And on that topic, I think of government inspectors arriving at cults such as the family, these cults being tipped off in a state of preparedness where everyone is minding their P's and Q's and everything looks jovial and well-kept. The inspectors remind us of the analytically blind Red Cross workers who believed everything was up to scratch when visiting Nazi concentration camps. Nothing to see here. That's why it's so important to access an authentic, full-sense experience of life in these cultic compounds. When we see videos and interviews of former cult members and see pictures of them when they were active cult members, we can surely feel something of what they may have experienced and went through. Which brings us to another aspect around cults and their respective leadership. Surrounding the absolute cult leaders have for spreading lies about how wonderful they are, like good deceitful devils hiding the truth of their identity, because those who have a stake in the cult are not going to reveal its true inner mode.
like photo cult, photos of a cult produce videos that are an example of how cults create narratives and images in the form of sight and sound, wherein they play at a pretense of who they are. Such videos also offer insight not only into the propaganda vehicles used to lure further members to join, but the mentality and the practices that exist within these closed-off communities, which often act as a type of jail for the concerned member. A video entitled Cult Members Sing to Their Leader on YouTube involves visibly frightened young girls and boys who share as a collective the hyper-vigilant, traumatised mannerisms in their outward appearance and behaviour. Trying ever so desperately to smile, the group sit and sing, obviously under instruction and coercive methodology throughout the duration of this video. The thing about the leader saying, Oh daddy, we are sorry that you have to go, but daddy, we're going to carry it on. End quote. Knowing that the children of God was a sex cult, one can only think of what horrors truly lie behind the video and the ugly sordidness that lie behind these lyrics. One of the best sources to learn about former cult members is to access their own user-generated blogs and podcasts. When former cult members do podcasting about cults, naturally they can be deeply gripping and insightful. The profound brainwashing, emotional manipulation and indoctrination that goes into being in a cult is demonstrated in the world of these podcasts. John Dillon, American ex-Mormon, psychologist and host of Mormon Stories, takes his time with former members of the Mormon faith and really allows them to process their experiences. Jen Kaiabas of Lessons on Leaving and Faith Yan spend their podcast psychologically processing what it means to be former second-generation Moonies and what it entails to have finally left this cult. Deeper Reflections Psychopathy and Human Evil Cults are notoriously deceitful as an inverted, inverted form of religion that ruins the lives of members who have fallen prey to it. They cause in their wake a challenge to think about what is going on that causes its members the heartbreaks that they had to endure. Footage from helicopters flying over a mansion showing poisoned dead bodies being stretchered away revealed to us the price that is paid when cults like Heaven Gate finally take it too far. We know surely by now that the word cult is not exclusively meant for people practicing strange Luciferian satanic rites like the Manson Group and the Son of Sam uh, that the phenomenon of cults refer to far more than satanic panic. There seems to be some hard truths told in the staples of classical horror fiction such as Dracula and Frankenstein about cult members. The cult leader does appear to have a Dracula-like power over his subjects, and his subjects do behave as if they have turned into a Frankenstein-like zombie. I do feel we deserve an explanation of how this arises. The book, Psychopathy of Human Evil, edited by Sheldon Iskovitz and, and Elizabeth F. Howell, do offer clues regarding the dynamic of leader 
and their gullible, obedient follower. We can deduce that cult leaders are a high functioning on the spectrum, and therefore instead of rotting in prison, they are running a cult which often is prolific at gaining an abundance of money out of people. Their charisma and ability to gather people around them is indicative of the fact that they are not merely lone wolves who are out to kill. Bolas, 1995, shows the childhood etiology or origins not only of the serial killer, I think, but the cult leader as well. To quote, for Bolas, the serial killer is created in childhood by severe relational trauma of the men who become serial killers of anonymous people. He states, they have suffered a kind of emotional death. He believes the impact of early trauma is overwhelming and drastic and he explains in place of a once live self a new being emerges identified with the killing of what is good the destruction of trust love and reparation end quote i believe this quote also represents the cold-blooded behaviors of cult members who treat the humans they meet like toys to be used for their pleasure why because humanity is already dead inside of them. Sigmund Freud's writings on the group help explain why the leader has found his perfect flock. From Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego, 1921, quote, A group is an obedient herd which could never live without a master. It has such a thirst for obedience that it submits instinctively to anyone who appoints himself its master. End quote. What I have described is the tragic psychology that lures cult members into a lifetime of suffering, a kind of fatal marriage made in hell between the psychotic cult leader and his indoctrinated followers who bend to his whim. Investment into social service and mental health are clearly required to protect our world citizens from such vultures who prey on vulnerable people. I intend to create more podcasts about the teams mentioned in this episode. In the meantime, I would like to thank you for tuning in to my program. Thank you, and until next time.